0: All right. How much snow did you get?
1: Oh, uh, about six inches or so, you know. Yeah, but it's already gone, basically.
0: (laughs) We have a foot. Oh, God. And it's not going anywhere.
1: No. (laughs) Is is it still snowing there?
0: No, it went until like five yesterday. Okay. So I went out and – oh, it was was such a nightmare. I'm so out of shape. The – the plow guy was supposed to come, and apparently his trucks were broken down, so I had to plow out, we have a long driveway, and, oh, had and like that. I had to shovel that Oof. whole thing, and I'm so sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, you, reali- really you realize bad. how, snow, snow
2: shoveling will make you realize how out a shape you are. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> this is no politics at the dinner table, I'm Tony Biancasino.
0: And I'm Amit Prakash, today we have on a very special guest. Um, <laughs> he's a historian, he's the author of a lot of books, um, most recent ones being *Mumbai Fables*, uh, a great history on the history of that city, and *Emergency Chronicles* in the Raj Gandhi and democracy's turning point. He's also a professor at Princeton, and most importantly, he's my dad, Gyan Prakash. So we're gonna get school. This is gonna be great. Yeah, let's talk India. Let's go. All right, so let's get started. So, Dad, I've been trying to figure out a way to get you on the podcast ever since we started, like, years ago, and and obviously there's always reasons to talk, there's always, you know, India, you can always talk about politics and society in India, but from, like, basically late 2019 through this year, India has had, like, a banner year of, like, terrible things happen, uh, and so I thought, uh, this would be the time for you to come in and try to explain all this to me. Yeah. Us. So,
1: what's so terrible about India? <laughs> yeah, well,
0: okay. Yeah. So, you know, um, so the 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 things that I wanted to get to today, um, and there there are four things, and I don't know if we'll you know fully address all of them, but maybe maybe we can. Um, but first of all. Last year, there's this revocation of Kashmir's special status in the Indian Constitution, so that's one. The next one is the CAA, the acronym of the Citizenship Amendment Act, um, which has been described by critics um, as having a sort of distinct anti-Muslim bent. Um, And then now currently, we've got... What some are saying is the largest organized strike in world history where a quarter billion people uh, are on strike, either as farmers or in sympathy with Indian farmers uh, in India. and then there's, you know, sympathy strikes across the world as well. Um, and then finally, the kind of the craziest one, uh, which is a religious law, which is called the unlawful conversion of religious ordinance, um, of religion ordinance, which has just been passed in Uttar Pradesh, which is a large state in Northern India, very populous. That's basically based on a, on a conspiracy theory known as the love Jihad, um, (laughs) conspiracy theory. So the, the, the thing that I, I've no noticed about reading about this stuff is that they all seem like they're pretty much connected. Right. And it's obvious that they are connected because it's one government doing all this at around the similar time. It's this party in power that's you know pushing all this stuff. So there's obviously some connection there. Um, but before we talk about this discreetly, then maybe I think it makes sense to maybe set up who this party is and why they would be doing such things. So if you could talk a little bit um, about the origins of the current party in power. Uh, their political trajectory, and then also maybe their leader today.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> so the current ruling party is the Bharatiya Janta Party, which is known as BJP, uh, which roughly translates as uh, Indian People's Party. Uh, the origins of this party goes back to actually 1925, um, and there was an organization called. Uh, the RSS, the Rashtriya Soymsevak Sangh or National Volunteers Party which was set up um, as a Hindu nationalist party and the founders were uh, basically all admirers of the Nazis and um, Mussolini uh, really the German inspiration was there from the very beginning and their agenda was to think of India in similar terms, where India would be defined as basically uh, a Hindu nation and the Muslims would be treated like Jews uh, in Germany. They would be treated as second-class citizens and they would be allowed to be Indians only if they accepted what they called Hindutva or Hindu ness. As their primary cultural identity, so basically they were saying, so long as you are not Muslims, uh, you can be and treated as Hindus, you can be Indians. Okay. So that was a party formed in 1925, and that's the ideological inspiration for the current BJP. And uh, after India's independence in 1947. They established a political party, it was then called Jansang, um, which had its existence until 1977 when it merged into another party, as a kind of opposition party against Indira Gandhi. And then that broke up, and then in 1980, the BJP was formed. And since then, it's been uh, a right wing Hindu nationalist party. So they never forgot their origins in the RSS. And most of the leaders of the BJP have been RSS activists, you know, officials at some rank. And you could say that the broad policies of the BJP uh, are controlled by the RSS. And so the current uh, Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, was also an RSS um, activist. And uh, he was the chief minister of Gujarat in, in the West. Uh, and under him, there was a massive pogrom against the Muslims that was carried out in 2002. Um, and so when he fought the election in 2014 and came to power, uh, he came with all these credentials he was known as the person who if he did not actively uh, carry out the program but certainly you know his government stood by and allowed the program to continue uh, now the funny thing was that in 2014 during the election you know most of the national newspapers they thought that if they exposed his role in 2002 that would you know depress his um, candidacy in fact people voted precisely for that <laughs> you know <laughs> oh yeah he'll beat up the muslims yes yeah, so he's the guy we want uh, and he also came with this, what was called the gujarat model which was a kind of a pro-business economic policy model it was not so much pro-business but it was pro crony capitalist business so industrialists that he liked and who supported him they got all sorts of you know favorable deals under his government and so basically after 2014 he has carried out that rss agenda which is anti-muslim Unite India behind this idea of a kind of, a, would say, political Hinduism, uh, which has nothing to do with religion. It doesn't have anything to do with faith or worship or gods or anything. It is really a political identity. Uh, and in uniting Hindus around this sort of uh, singular idea of political Hinduism, uh, they found, of course. Muslims to be a problem and also Dalits, their former untouchables to be a problem because if the Dalits said as they do that the cause of our oppression is Hinduism because Hinduism divides the society into these castes and places us at the bottom. Uh, so as against that, they, uh, the BJP argued, no, Hindus were, you know, Homogeneous, uh, a single identity and all this caste and so on is a thing of the past and it doesn't exist anymore so they carried out of course in addition to anti-muslim uh, policy and anti-dalit policy so many muslims were lynched and many uh, dalits were also lynched uh, and then along with it came you know this pro-business and pro uh, you know i would say really crony capitalist policy i mean the general aim is to make india more market friendly so in that sense you could say it's continuing the neoliberal policy that the congress government had initiated in 1991 Um, but it's doing it uh, more single-mindedly and in favor of particular big businessmen like the ambanis you know uh, and there's another group called adanis and these are the people who now own a lot of media uh, television media and so he's got media under his control it's not formally under control um, but they really sing his tune um, and in order to really enact his policies um, he needs autocracy. So the only way he can carry out his policies against Muslims, against Dalits, pro-business is to uh, assume more and more dictatorial power. Because, you know, uh, people say offhandedly that, you know, he's very popular and, you know, BJP is the dominant party. But they were elected with only 37% of the vote, which means, you know, 63% 63% of India voted for other parties. Okay. So, in order to then establish his, you know, sole power, he needs autocracy. Uh, and so, in each of these issues that you mentioned, whether it is uh, Kashmir or uh, CAA amendment uh, or the farmers' policies. Or love jihad. The only way they can carry this out is through above, you know, through assuming more and more power, and that's the really reason for the current crisis.
0: Okay. Okay. So I have a, a couple of questions that emerge from that. So one thing um, that I've read about, and, and in in terms of the argument that that Modi is just the sort of foam on a large populist wave that there is this sort of very popular base support is that unlike say other right-wing parties and perhaps this is and you maybe you can speak to this is that it seems like what's unique about the bjp um is that first of all it's been around for a long time right that it's got this sort of longevity um that The only other party that I can think of that's sort of founded around the same time that also has a sort of right-wing bent and sort of politicized religion is the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Um, And so they're also 20s, and they've been around for a long time. They get repressed, and sometimes they're a little bit in favor, but they're usually out of favor, but they, they never came to the power that the BJP has had. So one thing is longevity. The other thing is the fact that they've, they've got this kind of, uh, or it seems like they have this network of civil society um, organizations that so even when they're not in power, they're still sort of politicking um, and sort of insinuating themselves uh, in in various precincts of, of Indian society and life. Um, and so does that lend sort of credibility to the argument that actually, you know, Yes, they're they're on the sort of electoral scale. They might not always get you know what you know a majority. They'll just get the plurality. Um, but one could say that for a lot of you know coalition style politics around the world, right? So, but do they have this sort of support? Because th- I think that's probably for me, that's the scariest thing: is that you know people vote badly all the time, but the fact that these people are implanted in various ways. Um, throughout different registers of life? Is that is that the case?
1: No, that's a very good point. I mean, one could say that uh, the RSS in particular uh, is the largest, you could say, NGO uh, in India. Uh, it's the largest civil society organization which has its uh, foot in practically uh, every domain and with the government support it's in fact expanded its reach. So, you know, they are in education, um, they are in various kind of cultural organizations. Um, and one reason why, you know, they've had some trouble in Bollywood, uh, is that they recognize Bollywood is culturally very powerful. Uh, Hmm. but they haven't been able to capture that. And so, there's a great deal of sort of a conflict going around with its attempt to, you know, um, put its stamp uh, on Bollywood and try to make Bollywood these sort of Hindu nationalist films and so on. Um, So they're moving there. So it's true that, you know, as an organization, um, it's very powerful and there is nothing that the opposition can claim, that comes anywhere close to it, you know. So, and through it, uh, one could say that, you know, the RSS has really kind of spread its sort of, uh, I think of it as very poisonous ideology um, among the people in general. So much so that, you know, I mean, you speak to some relatives, and whom you never thought would sort of entertain such ideas, they're suddenly like, you know, Trump supporters, you know, like, (laughs) uh, you know, completely sort of blind. Uh, They will not entertain any question about the present government. And if you say anything, you'll say, well, you're anti-national. So it's done something just like, you know, Trump, you know, it's sort of just done something to the population at at large. And so, yeah, that's very scary. Um, That when it's no longer a question of, you know, a political party in power, but it's spread among people and people start speaking this kind of language, then you know you've got a real problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing that, that stuck with me is that when you know ideology is powerful is that when people start speaking the words and stuff like that and don't even recognize where it's coming from, they just think, "Oh, that's just how we think that's just how you know the the way the culture is these days but there's a there's a very <laughs> distinct source from this right that they've been pushing this, and again, like the decades upon decades of their existence mm-hmm. in know in a way they remind me actually of um you know, Orange County Republicans in the 1960s, you know, in, in, mm-hmm. in kitchen tables, like, let's start from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And we'll start with the school boards. And eventually we'll get Reagan in the in the White House. And then of course, you know, it's a, a, a short skip hop and a jump to Trump from Reagan, mm-hmm. you know, so that it they they're really playing this long game mm-hmm. um, that and so, just like in America, what is the response? What is the political response from the Congress Party, which, you know, for decades had all this credibility because they, you know, they opposed the British.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the, the you know, the strange thing is that here is the Congress Party, which was the leading party of, you know, anti-colonial Indian nationalism against the British. The BJP has, in fact, hijacked its kind of a nationalist uh agenda from it and now the bjp is seen as uh, the nationalist party and the congress is seen as anti-national um it's
0: uh wait hold on i just want to before before you go on i just want to pause for a second just to people who are listening it's an rss guy who killed uh mahatma gandhi Right, right, so so one of the leaders of the Congress party and the nationalist movement and the successful uh, you know um independence movement is then killed by the r s s guy, and now the r s s and the b j p are more national than congress yeah right? that's that's the grand irony
1: now you know just to th- think of it in kind of a a larger kind of a twentieth century perspective, you know um one might want to just go back so one can say that you know in the early 20th century that sort of three broad tendencies in indian politics one is the congress led nationalism which says you know you may be hindu you may be a muslim but you are indian first okay and that's the form of indian nationalism then you have the rss which says no, to be Indian you have to be Hindu. Okay. Only Hindu can be Indian. Okay, so that's second. And then you have Muslim nationalism, uh, which says Muslims are a political community, and that just because we are a demographic minority doesn't mean that we don't deserve political equality with Hindus. Okay, so whatever setup that may come, you know, after the British leave uh must include muslims as an equal partner in the political setup okay so you can say hindu nationalism and you know uh, uh, indian nationalism and muslim nationalism were unable to come to an agreement and with the usual british perfidy of divide and rule the partition happened since then so the congress came to power and Congress had this sort of agenda of a kind of post-colonial national development based on modernization from above. You know, the argument was, we will educate everyone, we will modernize the economy, we'll modernize the society. uh, And then eventually, you know, all these problems of intercommunal conflict and so on will go away as people get educated and economically India develops. That was the policy which they failed to deliver. And so by the late 1970s, there's a kind of a crisis of the legitimacy of Indian state. And it happens actually you know, globally. Uh, you can think of anti-war movement in the U.S., uh, May 68, uh, cultural revolution in China. Around the world, around sort of mid-60s to early 70s, there's a general ferment from below where... The argument is that the state has not delivered on its various promises, okay. uh, and out of this crisis, then uh, you have emergence of various authoritarian governments: Bhutto in uh, Pakistan, Bandaranaike in Sri Lanka, Indira Gandhi in India. Um, you can think of Watergate in the same way. Um, various kinds of measures to stay in power. Okay and that doesn't succeed. So there's a kind of a crisis of legitimacy. And so when Indira Gandhi comes back to power in 1980, she moves away from that earlier idea of this sort of Indian nationalism, and she also starts speaking kind of soft Hindutva, you know, Uh, appease Hmm. the the Hindus a little bit, and she also becomes pro-business. Because there is a, a crisis of legitimacy. People don't believe, uh that the state represents them and it's in that context and the bjp really starts to develop it uses that kind of crisis to promote this idea of building a very muscular india which will be based on uh hindu citizenship and that we will unleash the power of this sort of hindu citizenship through capitalism through market that in the market now we don't need any of this kind of a you know state uh, initiated public sector government programs what we need is to unleash the market and unleash the power of this sort of muscular hindu citizen that's the kind of a setting in which then the bjp sort of continues in the 90s and early 2000 okay. and to some extent like the Democratic Party over here, you know Congress also plays the kind of same game but with less effectivity. Um, same kind of a neoliberal agenda but you know not as well. There is a very well-known uh, commentator in India called P Sainath who writes on agriculture on rural affairs and i'll quote him he says something which kind of captures it he says referring to the congress government in early 2000 it was called upa government united progressive alliance he says the upa gang was a gang that couldn't shoot straight and bjp is a gang that never stops shooting And that's what's the thing that went on. So just as in the US, you know, you can trace from the Tea Party to uh, Trump. In India, you can also trace this kind of linkage in the 90s and early 2000 between uh, the earlier BJP, which was, you know, mobilizing around the issue of building a temple in place of a mosque and so on. To uh, Narendra Modi, you know, it's a similar kind of a movement. You get the same ideological phenomenon, but now in this kind of a really toxic package of, you know, personality cult, authoritarian uh, practices, uh, and a really, you know, violent anti-minority agenda.
0: Okay, so I know Tony probably have a bunch of questions, but I one 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 thing before you go, Tony. Sure. The this is this is a, the the international or global aspect of this. I think is interesting, right? So that and and also there's comparisons and, and contrasts as well. And so I'm thinking about the U.S. and the U.K. around that time, right? So in the U.S. and the U.K., you've got basically a battle within the presumably left wings of their of their political establishment, right? So in in the 80s, you've got like the Ben, you know, the Tony Ben old Laborites, you know, fighting with the new labor people. And of course, new labor wins, and you get Tony Blair, right, and you get the embrace of neoliberalism. So they're having this sort of intra party warfare. And it's the same sort of thing in the US, you've got, you know, the moment of, you know, Jesse Jackson, and that sort of Possibility um, of a different way for the Democratic Party, but of course he loses, and you end up with with the Clintons, um, and again the embrace of neoliberalism. The weird thing in India is that I just remember this—you know, going—you know, going to India my whole life, you know—suddenly, Campa Cola became Coca Cola. Right? Yeah. Like this is this was like the switch. It's yeah. like all of the Indian products that were like, you know, kind of like autarkic, like, we're going to build it ourselves. And it's going to be, you know, Indian made. And you know, well, we have, obviously, we have a huge market. Um, So, but that all changed. But that came not with, it came kind of at the behest of the Congress. And it didn't seem and I haven't, you know, I've tried to do some reading about this, it doesn't seem like there's a big fight about it. They just kind of drifted in that direction. And what does that say? Like, do they not have like a, is that kind of also why they're not that appealing? Is because at least the BJP, you know what they stand for, mm-hmm. right? It's pretty clear what they believe. And with the Congress by the 80s and maybe by the 90s, is it's kind of more slippery about, you know, what is it exactly that they believe?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's a question of what does the con- Congress party stand for? Uh, aside from the power of the indira gandhi family what does it stand for now in the 80s i said you know indira gandhi moved towards sort of soft hindutva and pro-business policy and then under her son rajiv gandhi they moved towards you know he in fact he had a uh, a coterie around him which and they were called the computer boys so these were people who came from telecom and computer IT industry and they were going to modernize India through market and new technology and so on. It's really after 1991 that they go full scale pro-market. There is an element of, you could say, social democracy still in the Congress, which is not against neoliberalism, but very much like the Democratic Party, okay, so we'll, follow you know globalization like clinton you know we'll follow globalization etc uh, but we will also have some social policies you know provide some safety nets for the poor uh so that was about the extent of any kind of internal debate you could say there was in the congress so we will follow pro market policies and people who are hurt we will give them some you know kind of minimum uh assistance you know that was it the bjp came and said forget all this we'll go market full market okay. uh, and that's why when you know you raise the question of opposition uh the congress you know they can't point to any policies that they stand for where they will not even you know question of secularism uh, They can't even say, you know, we are full-blooded, you know, secular people because they still try to kind of, uh, you know, go to temple to show that, no, 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 we are actually Hindu. Uh, So it's like...
0: This is Michael Dukakis riding around in a tank.
1: Yeah, yeah. So what do you stand for? You know, and that's why I think the agitation that uh, started in December last year Against the Citizenship Amendment Act was so inspiring and so powerful because you know for a long time people had been saying we need a counter narrative to BJP. You you have to say what do you stand for, and there was this kind of a counter narrative that was emerging from the street, and it's interesting that the movement was started and led by older Muslim women you know of Delhi they started the movement you know and they were not affiliated with any political party so it was really organic that way and they were saying we want equality under the Constitution so it was really you know taking the Constitution on onto the streets you know really constitutionalization of everyday life Um, you know people were reading preambles to the Constitution at these various you know demonstrations and rallies and so on so it was really powerful that way and you could see something emerging and the BJP was really you know uh, taken aback they didn't realize I mean they had won the 2019 election with such you know margins that they they became arrogant and they thought well we could do anything so they did Kashmir and then they did uh, this amendment act and so they were taken aback and then Corona happened and the BJP took that opportunity to sort of really crush uh, the movement and, you know, put everyone in prison and, and so on. Uh, so and now, once again, we see with the farmer agitation, uh, again, something organic sort of happening and happening outside the established political parties, you know. So. It seems to me that if the opposition is to come and is to succeed, it will come outside the established political parties. Um, And, you know, it's not so easy for even the BJP to tar these, you know, Throw salt of the earth looking farmers from Punjab, you know, with like Sikhs with their turbans and so on and call them, you know, anti-national, you know, Hey, they are, you know, they provide the bread basket, you know, you can't call them, you know, anti-national, you know, foreign agents and so on. So they've tried it, but it's, it's very difficult to do that. And so, you know, I I was just talking to someone uh, from Delhi this morning and, um, He he was saying that, you know, it's uh, amazing to see the resolve of these farmers who've come. Uh, And, you know, they are determined. They, They are simply saying to the government, you simply repeal the bill, repeal the law. Nothing else in the government saying, we'll amend this. Because the government knows, you know, if they can just sort of somehow, overcome this moment of crisis you know uh they will rely on narendra modi to say and narendra modi is saying trust me trust me because you know i am one of you uh, and they're saying no if you are <laughs> then you just repeal these laws and then we can talk
2: yeah it's kind of like when when trump tells uh, african-americans to trust him yeah or, or or people in alabama think them and trump are are cut from the same cloth it's hilarious yeah yeah um i got a couple questions yeah so um one is how many political parties are in india oh active i mean you know <laughs> like you know ones that can do something well you know so <laughs> sure there's hundreds but the
1: at the national level yeah there's a BJP and there's a Congress, but Congress is now so enfeebled that mm. it's hard to even place it in the same category as the BJP. But it is the only really credible national party. Uh, then you have a number of regional parties. Uh, and and they are very powerful in particular regions. And in particular regions, they uh, also hold power. Uh, they are, you know, run the state government. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mosaic. And I would say since the 90s, uh, sort of coalition politics had become the kind of norm in India, even at the national level and what the bjp is trying to do is to in fact even crush that um, coalition politics because coalition politics means some amount of federalism that the you know the central federal government doesn't rule everything uh, that the state governments have some power and what the bjp has tried to do is to kind of nationalize politics in a way that you know the only thing you have to answer am i with modi or am I against Modi? Got him. Uh, and that's why some of these, you know, uh, regional parties. Uh, so, for example, in Maharashtra, where Bombay is, uh, it had a, a, it has a political party which was actually an urban fascist party for a long time, since the 60s. It's called the Shiv Sena, and they were BJP's allies in the last election but they realize that you know any alliance with the bjp is so dangerous because bjp will just devour you that initially they will come and say we are your junior partners and you know we'll let you have the limelight and come next election they'll say no we are in charge <laughs> so they realize that and so after the election they completely changed their entire sort of uh, Ideology and the way they speak, and and they formed a government now with the Congress,
0: uh, the
1: Shiv Sena. Sena. I mean, you know, my friends in Bombay they are doing cartwheels because you know, (laughs) all their lives they had spent you know (laughs) opposing the Shiv Sena because it was such a fascist party, and now suddenly that party is against the BJP. Wow,
2: wow. (laughs) Let Let me ask you a question. As a historian, what do you? Th- I'm gonna phrase it one way, and then I'm gonna change it. Is there, in 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 your opinion, more nationalism worldwide than any time in recent history, or um, is this just always going on? But technology now makes it feel like you know, German nationalism, Poland, uh, Hindu, um, American, and it feels like everywhere. It's not just Trump it's everywhere there's these uprising of nationalism and it's terrifying but is that is, is that normal
1: um, no I mean I think you know it's um, it's true that you know what's happening in India is not confined to India it's kind of global and that um, you know you'd see in Brazil you can see in Poland see in Turkey in mm-hmm. you know all over Brexit uh, but what is different about this kind of resurgence of nationalism is that it's very different from the let's say early 20th century variety where you could say the early 20th century uh, was of a kind where you know which political scientists call um, civic nationalism that it was based on some idea that in the public sphere uh, We are all equal, uh, regardless of race and religion, gender, and so on. It may not have been fully realized, but that was the, at least, ideology. And that's the way Congress uh, in India was also. What's different now is this uh, definition of nationalism in highly sort of ethnic, uh, and anti-minority terms in this kind of majoritarian way and that's what is sort of different Um, and people say that you know the uh, emergence of this kind of nationalism um, is connected to the devastation created by this sort of neoliberal globalization where you know it devastated communities Uh, you know so if you think of communities in uh, Michigan which were built around you know auto industry and so on um, there was a, uh, you could say a way of life built around unions you know stable factory work and so on when that was destroyed uh, and you know and you can hold kind of Democrats really responsible for it and particularly with NAFTA and you know and under Clinton it devastated its communities and so then people began to ask okay so if our life is no longer defined by the stable form of life um, what is it defined by um, is it defined by you know buying things from here selling things from there and so uh, where do we belong it's in that context that you you know be- get this uh, resurgence of this new kind of nationalism or populism um, and and then you know I, I mean I hear I think Wendy Brown's book undoing the Demos is great because she talks about how uh, what neoliberalism does is to say economize everything that under Adam Smith for example you know market was about trade and production but under neoliberalism uh, market is about everything whether it's university it's college everyone has to uh, answer to some cost benefit analysis you know uh, do you make profits uh, if you're doing humanities you know what do you produce what profit do you produce if you don't do profit what good is humanities you know so this kind of logic when that happens democracy is also no longer about an arena where you participate in order to think of common good you think about democracy as an arena of winners and losers so so you know when trump talks about you know you will win so much that you'll get tired of winning you know he was speaking of this kind of language that you know it'll be the, uh, an arena of winners and losers and not only winners and losers, we will humiliate the losers yeah. uh, and we'll take pleasure in that kind of humiliation so that's why you know, for example in India you had these people lynching Muslims uh, beating up Dalits and then taking videos of it and circulating it because we not only beat people who are cause of our distress we also humiliated them we rubbed their noses on the ground you know and so democracy is now no longer uh, uh, you know an arena of conversation and argument and uh, you know you can have differences but you know but you pursue uh, some idea of common good it's an arena where again like the market you determine who's the winner who's the loser you know? so this is what i think makes sort of this current phase of nationalism really so destructive.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's the interesting thing is that there's this political shift, right? So Tony raises questions like nation- nationalism has been around for a couple of centuries as an organizing principle, right? But it, it sort of waxes and wanes in terms of its how hard-nosed it is, how exclusionary it is, and all that sort of thing. And a lot of it, People try to separate the politics and economics, but but they're they're utterly you know intertwined. And what we're seeing, if we just take like three different places, India, the United States, and Israel, um, the parties that are in power or the ideological programs of the parties that are in power, and they, the, the parties themselves might have shifted a bit, um, and the personnel and things like that. But those. Those ideas in the say the 1960s used to be kind of the lunatic fringe, right? That they were that they were uh, in Israel, you know, Menachem Begin and stuff like that. When he goes out to these settler outposts, he's shouted down by the broad uh, majority of the Israeli press as, as being completely provocative and, you know, going out there with a gun. Now you've got, you know, settler MPs showing up to the Knesset with guns, you know, the, 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 the shift is, is so huge. And it's the same thing when you think about the Barry Goldwater kind of movement in the sixties, which was also seen as kind of, those those are right, right right-wing crackpots. They're so crazy. They're the, you know, the John Burt Society people and you know now we've got QAnon who who has representation in the U.S. Congress, yeah. right? Um, and and in the same way, right? That that we could maybe, maybe it'll be a little bit of a different story, but also you know Congress in the 1960s is a dominant force. It's not the BJP, right? They're they they may have some regional power, but they they certainly do not have a a, a national platform. And now there, who else is there, right? So the how that fits and this is this is I just I'm thinking out loud here, but I this is this is something that I struggle with is that how do you connect this economic story of of liberalization, right economic liberalization, um, with this rising ethno nationalism, right? And I think that that helps explain it a lot, right? The winner loser sort of, um, context right Bec- because yes then then it's so much fun to put your boot on somebody's neck right because you're getting you feel you're feeling the reward and 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 you know then you can identify as, as not a loser
1: yeah right that, i mean when you when you move to politics where you think that your future and you know your condition in your future um is not connected to uh you know, people around you, people of uh, your community, and that politics is about, you know, doing something about that community, Uh, but is about finding who is responsible for your uh, current condition and punish them. That's when you get, you know, really this politics of us versus them. Uh, on steroids and then that's when you get QNON. that's when you get people saying he is responsible they stole my election and and we're going to teach them a lesson then you know democracy is not a a kind of a common venture, it's really a a combat zone uh, where you fight against your enemies so you know if you i mean the really here the challenge is how does one think of uh, a politics that will uh, confront this and change it and i think here it is really uh, you know it cannot be just an economics-based politics i mean i don't think bernie sanders in itself will work um you have to think here something that brings bernie sanders and martin luther king together in a kind of a single language and you know presents uh, uh, and uh, an alternative and 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 an account narrative that is expansive and one of the things that you know um people say uh I'm talking about Trump. People say no. <laughs> A, lot <laughs> A lot of people, of people are saying. People say. <laughs> but Everyone's you know, <laughs> I, I've read that. You know, um, you read accounts of even uh, these gangsters. You know, when they're talking. But the gangsters also talk about uh, meaning of life. You know, what matters. You know, something greater than themselves. Uh, So any kind of politics that, you know, speaks and invites you to think about something greater than yourself um, has some, you know, potential, you know, and so, so far the Democratic Party has been so, um, even the kind of progressive side has been so uh, fixated on certain kind of policies uh, will give you, you know, this, uh, you know, uh, collection of policy A, B, C, D, E, at the end of it it's like, what does this all mean? You know? (laughs) Uh, What is the kind of a vision that, you know, the Bush seniors would talk about the vision thing. I mean, what is the vision here? You know? What kind of society, what kind of future are you projecting? It's the same problem with the Congress too. You know, they will oppose a particular policy of the BJP here, a particular policy of BJP there, but saying, But what do you offer, you know? And I think people in general are responsive to that kind of, uh, you know, broad, expansive uh, vision of the future. Uh, And I think any politics of opposition to this kind of nationalism has to offer that kind of uh, expansive really ambition about the future. In order to confront this, you know, us versus them.
2: Yep, I agree. You're seeing it kind of go on with um, some of the young younger people in the Democratic Party right now—the real
0: progressives. Yeah, and yeah.
2: If they could just find a way to um, appeal to some of those Trump supporters, that it doesn't make sense that they're Trump supporters. Yeah, <laughs> but I think you're right. I think the whole the Democratic Party as a whole needs a. a they need to sit down with some PR people and figure out what the hell their messaging is because it's different to everybody. And right as of right now, we kind of understand what the Republican Party seems to stand for. It's I mean, right you
1: know, you think about people, you know, the younger people who speak about sort kind of climate right. change. Uh, yes, and they're really thinking in kind of planetary terms. And when you are able to really appeal to people at that level and say, you know, this is not just about now and the next quarter it is about really the future and if you can mobilize on that basis I think that's the only way Uh, otherwise you know you will constantly be thinking of okay you know maybe we'll win in Georgia but you know in
0: uh, New Hampshire we'll do something else it's terrible
2: right
0: (laughs) maybe they'll let us have a public option (laughs) yeah
1: wow (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, it just I, mean, I was just thinking of uh, Obama's slogan of "Yes, we can." Now, why was it powerful? It was powerful because it actually offered a vision. But then, once it comes to power, he says, uh, <laughs> "Maybe we can't." <laughs> <laughs> On second Yeah. thought. <laughs> oh man!
0: I <My> know. <laughs> So I, I want to okay we're 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 running out of time here but I wanted to end on this because we we've talked on this podcast about conspiracy theories before and we've had some specialists on about that and what's crazy to me is how powerful these things are these days um, and how they are actually affecting political structures so there's this law that was passed in Uttar Pradesh um, basically. Putting automatic scrutiny on any interfaith marriage, uh, and already uh, all and assuming, and it's really again they they use this sort of very neutral language. It's really about Muslims um, that that uh, any interfaith marriage will be subject to you know some sort of assessment and evaluation uh, to ensure that no element of coercion. Was involved, right? So that there's no sort of coerced conversion because of the marriage, right? Um, And so it's like they have to weirdly in India, where there's tons of arranged marriages all the time. They're going to make sure this is a love marriage, right? They're going to this is (laughs) this is where the government needs to step in. Um, But um, so how do? And now I've heard that at least four other states also have the same law. um, The in in i guess the bjp must have their version of alec where they can just circulate these laws and spread them around um so so how how does this travel because again something that was seen i read an article about this in 2009 this love jihad Hmm. thing uh and it was kind of laughed at it was like these people are crazy (laughs) i mean they're nuts and then now one of the most populous states in smack in the middle of india um, that's the law, and they're arresting people. Um, how does that come to be? What 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 is what is in place for that to well,
1: happen? Well, you're right that you know when it first, uh, the term "love jihad" was first you know, uh, coined and uttered. People thought that this is just lunatic fringe, you know, uh, and it's completely against you know even the most restrictive reading of the constitution about equality of religion and so on i mean and if there were a real constitutional test for it it would not survive uh and it's not surprising that you know they haven't actually enacted laws but passed ordinances uh because they know that once they pass this law it will not stand I, it's, i'm not even sure whether they can pass this law you know but when you have the lunatic fringe now in power you know they realize that the only way they can enact these things is through some form of autocracy you know so uh and this is another way i mean it's not as if they are actually concerned about uh stopping interfaith marriage but they're using it's a dog whistle you know it's 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 a way to Again, consolidate sort of this Hindu unity uh, so uh, <clears throat> I mean, I think at the popular level, it will find it very difficult to win acceptance of something like this because it this seems like really beyond the pale uh, and and that's why you know they've done it through ordinance, you know you know these guys are also very cynical they they will you know this ordinance can only last for 6 months uh, unless it is enacted into a proper law so if it uh, lapses after 6 months it doesn't matter to them they may mm. uh, reintroduce it as an ordinance in a slightly different language uh, and have it for another 6 months uh, but mainly as sort of propaganda. I mean, one of the things that I find, you know, very, many things, but one thing that I find very useful in uh, Hannah Arendt's writing, where she talks about propaganda, she says, what is propaganda aimed at? And that the fascists engage in propaganda because they know that there is a substantial amount of population that is not with them. And the only way in which they can gather support from them is through propaganda and so this is what i see happening over here it's another way of you know the sort of hindu fascist propaganda uh, aimed at people who are not with them i mean people with them they don't have to worry but the 63 percent people who haven't voted for them you know how do we get them we get them by saying look you know these muslims as usual thereafter are Hindu women. And it is very gendered. It's not about, Mm -hmm. you know, um, the men. men. It is really (laughs) our Hindu women are, you know, in danger. I mean, this is so classic. You know, this is, I mean, from the U.S. South with all this lynching. I mean, it's the same thing, you know. Our Hindu women are in danger. And because, of course, they have no mind of their own. Uh, And, you know, they are... (laughs) Uh, under spell of these and this is the other thing kind of sexual kind of anxiety Uh, just like there was about the blacks you know that these Muslim men they're kind of maybe more virile than you know Hindu men and (laughs) uh, somehow bring these Hindu women under their spell so we have to protect
0: them they don't bring the love they bring the love jihad oh my god (laughs) Wow.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Well, well let's before right. we wrap it up on yeah. it yeah yeah quick
2: quick so, question how do we feel about the Sixers and what do you think about James Harden coming to town possibly would you give up Ben Simmons? No, I would
1: never give up James uh Simmons for Harden Ben
2: Simmons Harden even like never. he may last for
1: another two years that's it and you know he had not won anything
2: right so that's true but Ben Simmons can't shoot the three-point. Yeah,
1: but he can do so many other things. <laughs> okay.
2: you're selling me. Here. I was kind of ready to get rid of him. As a real Philly fan, if you're not if you're not winning championships, we get rid yeah. of him, fired. So I'm ready to just get the revolving
0: door coming in. Okay, we're gonna keep Ben okay. Simmons. Okay. All right. Okay, Dad, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank okay. you so much. No it's been a long time. We've been wanting to yeah, get you on. Well,
1: great pleasure. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Um, that was great i mean i like i i I always like talking to seasoned historians about you know this whole trumpism and what's going on around the world because i thought the way he just put into perspective was one of the best i've ever heard yeah um of of what's going on and why and it just seems when you hear someone like him talk it's like oh that makes sense yeah yeah no (laughs) it's hard to put all that
0: together right it's like (laughs) oh yeah you gotta from a lot of different places right and
2: it's happening all over you know I, I did want to we're just running we're running out of time well, I'm back on but I did want to I wanted to talk to him about the the border and the conflict with China mm. Um, mm-hmm. you know that's a whole nother podcast yeah. but I'm, I yeah. don't know a whole lot about it and I was really curious to see yeah. what he thought yeah. about it
0: yeah there's India always has like troubled borders right you know yeah Yeah. they should just put up a wall it's working for us isn't it (laughs) it's working like a charm they've got they've got they've got some walls they do (laughs) they do yeah (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah barbed wire and the whole thing (laughs) um yeah i mean i don't know how many i wanted to talk about this also because you know it's this huge country that doesn't always make the news that much in the US. I know. But probably should a lot more, yeah. particularly even if the US cares only about itself as right. they, that they could sort of look at the politics there and see the similarities and differences. It's a shame. I mean Well we're too fixated on China
2: right yeah. now and, and Russia, you know, hacking our system. And... Yeah.
0: The BJP man. <laughs> like you, you if you never heard of them, you'd be like, that's a promising name, the BJ Party, right? And like yeah, we can all yeah. get behind that. But no that's not what they're about. They're horrible. Do people call them the blowjob party? I away. wish. I mean, that's... Yeah. Uh, th- you know, if I, that was a, if I was like a 15-year-old ah, kid and I read, a, oh, the BJP, BJPA, um, that sounds like, you know, I go to a lot of people who vote for <laughs> Let's that. Let's start that. Yeah, yeah. But they're actually just the yeah, worst. Crooks. Um, they're crooks, and they're actually... I mean, they're actually evil. They're yeah, actually... Yeah. Yeah. They're organized hatred, and they're very good at it. Yeah. You know, so... Um, yeah, well, um, Christmas next week. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. I'm excited. A lonely little, I feel, you know, the the, the, the great thing about having kids. (laughs) That's true. uh, It's just like, it's, it's been Christmas for a month already. And and I I actually love that. Kids cup um, kids when they, you
2: know, wake up. And Santa Claus game. There's and, already a couple. Really the There's already
0: a couple presents yeah. under the tree, and they're yeah. like freaking out. They're yeah. just it's they amazing. can't. Yeah,
2: yeah. I kind of have it in me too. I got. I've started putting some under the tree. I'm,
0: nice, nice.
2: You know, my Christmas guy.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know? All right, so we're we're gonna take next week off. Take next um, week off. But we'll be back. We'll be back after. Yeah, and and definitely in the new year. So definitely. We sold some more shirts. we sure will be indeed. happy to know. Um, we've we've got. Thirteen or fourteen left, so they're wow. still out there. If you're That's interested, um, you should be. You should be. Um, but yeah, yeah, we're going to um, be making our donations this week to both wow. these organizations: Fantastic. Uh, Operation Restoration. Good and, way to end of the uh, year. It's it's a great way to do it. So yeah, so look, at us. <laughs> look at us.
2: We're good people. Look at us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no politics at the dinner table is produced by Amit Prakash. Um, we have great uh, artwork on our social media by Mike Kinn, uh, who's doing some great stuff. I loved his Jeff Bezos yeah one. It was just so It's like yeah. hey, there'll is, be another this, one coming for this.
0: Yes. <laughs> I, I'm 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 thinking love jihad, yeah.
2: Yeah, or like, you know, the older professor beating the younger professor. <laughs> yes. Like leaning yeah. in on the dad thing. Um, cool man. Well we'll uh we'll see everybody after the break. Yeah. Yeah. Have a happy holiday.